So earlier this year, we read a book called Running a Dream by one famous author, Matt Fitzgerald. And in our talk with Matt, he explained that following the example set by, by the professionals is a good thing to do. Those guys know what they're doing, he said. And basically, if you could do sort of follow their example at your reduced level, you can really perhaps yield some amazing results if you're willing to commit. So, so this year I thought, that seems like a good idea. I'll give that a go. So I started doing a bit more mileage, quite a bit more mileage. Um, but, I, but I was targeted with the way I did the workouts. Did some double days, focused a bit more on my diet. So I'm, I'm really taking all the benefits from running the dream. Started doing some stretching. My daughter teaches yoga. She started giving me a yoga session. Um, I did some strength work. Because I'm retired, I can fit all these things in. Fantastic. I was following uh, James Dunn from the UK uh, with his systems. Then I started looking at my form uh, with Shane Benzies and his Lost Art of Running. Watch this space coming to a podcast that you love soon. And I even did the ultimate professional thing, started taking naps. So I piled all this together. And, and this year, Liz has been talking about trying to put together a three-hour marathon. And, and the only time I've ever done a three-hour marathon was 22 years ago. I did one sub-three-hour marathon. But I thought, maybe a comeback is on. Uh, I, read, I read Running the Dream. Matt did a fantastic comeback in, in, in that with his marathon. Not quite 22 years, but quite a lot of years. So I thought, but am I really in the right mental space to try and deliver a 22-year PR? That's pretty crazy. But now I've noticed Matt has a new book out, and he's going to help me with my mental space. So let's hear about The Comeback Quotient by Matt Fitzgerald. Hi and welcome to Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review the running books so you can decide whether it's worth reading for yourself. We hope listening to us chat about running can help you stay motivated about your own running and that maybe you could be a bit inspired to try something new, to try something different, to get motivated. My name's Alan and with my co-host Liz, we're going to talk today with author Matt Fitzgerald about his new book and second book released in 2020, I think. The Comeback Quotient. So this book is a part self-help book, part personal experience, and part compilation of inspiring stories about defying the odds. There are nine chapters uh, with a portion of Matt's training journey leading up to the Santa Rosa Ironman Triathlon at the end of each chapter. Uh, Matt wanted to make a comeback of his own, and he tried to apply some of the things he learned to make the best of his situation. In the first chapter, Matt explains what an ultra realist is and the other chapters detail how ultra realists deal with setbacks and the steps we can take to be more like an ultra realist. There are many stories about famous athletes who have accomplished spectacular things in the face of adversity. Some of the big names are Lionel Sanders, uh, Molly Seidel, who um, recently uh, was second in the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon, uh, Petra my, my ditch, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name 
right? But she, uh, she was a skier, Bob Carrar, and that's just to name a few. The last two chapters are about coming back from self-sabotage, which um, is something that probably a lot of us do. And uh, what happens when comebacks fail? Uh, because if we're honest, these are also potential outcomes of planning a comeback. So a little bit about Matt. I mean, he's very accomplished. So he's a lifelong runner and endurance athlete. Uh, he's been running since the age of 11. He later branched out to triathlon and did two Ironman triathlons. So the second one is in the book. So um, <laughs> now we know when that happened. Uh, he ran a sub 240 marathon. Um, after years of, uh, of trying and not succeeding. And uh, he's also a running coach and a triathlon coach. He's got many books, certified sports nutritionist, very long resume. Welcome again to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for being here. It's great to be back. So the first question is, the, how do you release two books in the same year? Because the other one was just released in the spring, and now you've got a second one, and the year's not even over. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this is the first calendar year in which I've had more than one book released. Um, you know, uh, what can I say? <laughs> I, I'm just happy I'm able to get away with it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I have lots of ideas and I like to write every day and, you know, it, it's possible to write two books a year. You know, the question really is, you know, do publishers want to release two or more books by the same author in a single year? You know, uh, you know, my agent tells me that, that some publishers, when I, when I come to them with a new proposal, that some of them who turn me down do so on the grounds that I'm, I write too damn many books. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think this is tw 28 books you've got now? Something like that? Are you counting? No. <laughs> You're having a party at 50 books or something? Well, I mean, I, I've counted. I counted last time. And I think last time I had counted 27. So this must be 28. Must be. Yeah. Must be. We had, we had um, Chris McDougall on a few weeks ago. And uh, I think I probably said that he was probably the most prestigious uh, author we'd spoken to, but um, by far and away, you're the most prolific. Mm -hmm. um, you get the crown for that. Yeah, I might, I might prefer to be prestigious. It's too late, too late now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I'm wrong, of course. I, I just figured, uh, you know, he wrote Bones for Run. Everybody seems to know Bones for Run. So. Yeah, that, that book probably sold as many copies as my 28 combined, or more. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the the key is that he sold them to also non-runners. I don't know. Maybe that's you got to find a way to relate running to non-runners. But um, or just, you know, get more runners to read about running because reading about running is great. Since we last talked to you, uh, Matt, 2020 has happened, basically, almost most part of it, which has given even even people who've got through it quite, quite well, some major challenges. So challenges have gone from uh, uh, small to, to enormous. People have lost loved ones, uh, et cetera. How's, how's 2020 treated you? Because I know you, you're married to um, Nataki. Yeah, you nailed it. Who's a, a black uh, lady. Um, so all of the uh, US um, Black Lives Matter and stress around that and difficulties around that. And um, did I hear that you had a, a brush with COVID as well? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I feel like 2020 is the year history came home to me. Um, you know, I think 
uh, you know, I, I may, I may never know for sure if I, if I had COVID, but you know, I would bet my life savings on it. I was quite sick for a month in March and April. Then yes, uh, the whole George Floyd conflagration happened. And I was blindsided by that one in the sense of just how deeply affected I was by it. Um, I mean, I would have expected to be affected, but I could not stop thinking about it for a long time. It really got in the way of sleep and, and work and, and uh, yeah, just struggled uh, with that. And then, you know, here in California, we had the wildfires. Um, oh, yes. And I, I, I was quite affected by those too. You know, I tried to be careful. I, you know, I moved all my training indoors for a period of time and was even wearing a mask indoors. I mean, Thankfully, I had masks handy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, no shortage you know, of that. <laughs> you know, I, I really felt it. I would get, you know, headaches and just this, you know, raw throat. And, um, and then I, I, I developed a kind of like a mystery health condition uh, right around the time the, the smoke cleared and I got back outside. And initially, I had all kinds of theories, you know, maybe iron deficiency or, you know, maybe a, a supplement I was having a bad reaction to. Um, but now my theory is, and, and this is unconfirmed as well, that um, inhaling those wildfire smoke particulates triggered a COVID long haul scenario um, because I, I've got all the symptoms. I, I'm now eight weeks into that. It's not getting better and it's not good. Um, I really can't run much. And uh, yeah, just so you know, I'm trying to see if I can manage the symptoms or eventually maybe with, with these t-cell tests you know, i'm like i'm too late for testing for the active virus too late for testing even for antibodies mm. but you know maybe maybe it doesn't even matter if i if it's diagnosed or not but but anywho yeah so from from covid to uh you know the racial strife in in the u.s to wildfires uh, i've been personally affected by by all three good time to write your comeback caution book you're going to need it exactly to, to really so Time, time to take my own advice. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we, we hope your fitness uh, helps you in terms of getting you back on on a uh, fit and healthy route. And from a family point of view, you know, we, we send you our best thoughts. Um, Canada's a little bit distant from some of the effects, but we watch them very, very closely. Um, we've been watching all the political machinations in the U.S. Uh, very closely uh, and uh, hoping that they get resolved. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see some unification of disparate views and moving towards a better situation with respect to the political climate. Maybe we won't get into the political climate too much, but uh, it's <laughs> kind of an essential part of, uh, of the U.S. performing well, I think. Yes, as, as they say, uh, when the United States sneezes, uh, sneezes, the world catches a cold. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. So um, how did you get the idea for this book? Um, you know, it, I, I view it as kind of a, a follow-on uh, to How Bad Do You Want It, which is a deep dive into the psychology of endurance sports, which, you know, just fascinates me. In that book, uh, it has a similar mixture of narrative and science, you know, particularly psychology, but even a little bit of, of neuroscience. Um, and the knock on that one, I mean, that book did well and it was, it, you know, people like it and seem to have gotten a lot of it. But, but the criticism I've gotten from a few people was that it, um, it's not practical enough, it, that it's, it's 
definitely more on the inspirational side. I mean, I have to say as a, as a coach, I, I'm a big believer that you can only hold athletes' hands so much. <laughs> and that, you know, par- part of what I actually like about running is that no matter how much good advice you get, you have to figure some stuff out for yourself. Nevertheless, unless I did have more to say on the subject and the, the comeback quotient is essentially that, um, you know, if I, if I get one more shot at, at helping uh, runners negotiate the the mental side of improving and even just, you know, enjoying a richer journey in the sport. Um, this book represents, you know, the, the second half of, of my message. Well, when I first started running and then also later on when I restarted running under a coach, um, I kind of very much enjoyed the dynamic of like you write it on the piece of paper and all I have to do is wake up in the morning, look what's written on the piece of paper and I go out and I do that workout. And I loved that relationship. Like I liked that I didn't have to plan and I didn't have to, but I later found out that we're all kind of an experiment of one. And it was kind of disappointing to find out because I really liked the you plan, I just execute and I will Mm -hmm. do whatever you write on that paper. Yeah, we we are all in uh, pretty much an experiment of one, and um, I guess that's why I like to have uh, you know like little tips and and uh, and things to try. Um, so I guess before we get into sort of the heart of the book, like at the beginning, you have some terms that you introduce. So the first one is uh, is an ultra realist. Um, and I guess along the same lines is mental fitness and comeback. So I guess um, maybe we should start by defining those three, starting with the ultra realist, because I think that's probably the most important part of the book. Yeah. So, I mean, that gets right to my, my message. You know, I, I, you know, experience has taught me that what distinguishes um, the athletes who are capable of making the very best of the very worst situations is a a willingness and capacity to fully face reality. And that, you know, um, when an athlete fails to to make the best of a situation, and and I'm choosing my words carefully, I don't mean that you can necessarily achieve your plan A goal, regardless of what happens, if you just have your stuff together. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, just that making the best of the situation, you know, the best that is actually possible. You know, a lot of times when, when we encounter challenges and setbacks, we don't even do that much. You know, <laughs> we, 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 you know, we, we leave some possibility on, on the table. And in, in my experience, uh, that always occurs in one way or another because an athlete has uh, failed to, to fully face the reality that they're confronting. Uh, so that, so all, you know, all, an ultra realist is someone who's just, um, kind of a role model in, in, in facing reality in difficult situations. And so then um, let's say mental fitness, I guess that because those were terms kind of used in your, in the first chapter. So I guess yep. uh, maybe a mental fitness and then, and then what, what would you categorize as a comeback? Right. Yeah. So um, mental fitness, I, I define as the ability to make the best of a bad situation. Very simply, um, uh, there's a phrase I use also. I think I believe in that same chapter. Uh, I think which helps athletes get their their heads around the, the idea. Uh, physical fitness allows you to do difficult things. Mental fitness allows you to deal with difficult things. Um, and I think you really need both in order to you know 
fulfill your potential as a runner. And then, you know, comeback, I, I define um, very broadly in the book. Um, and it's just, you know, a comeback is really just you know, the, the actuality of making the best of a situation that where things did not go your way in one way or another. Um, you know, it could be injury, illness, pandemic, you know, you know, any of a number of uh, setbacks that occur in your, in your life uh, that affect your running. So yeah, comebacks uh, come in, in all shapes and sizes. Would it be true that uh, you know, when, you're, when you're a runner, you tend to focus on running and hence your, phys- your physical fitness and, and maybe not so much, so where's my, where's my head around this? You, you, you hear people saying, oh, I'm not a real runner. Yes, you are. You know, <laughs> fitness up to it. You know, you're doing that right foot, left foot thing down the street. That's running. You're a runner. But sort of mentally, you, you hear that a lot in, in our club when, when, you know, they're just, we're just all casual enthusiasts. You hear that a lot. And is, is, does that sort of portray the, illustrate the fact that although people are embarking upon the physical journey, journey they're not so much thinking about the mental journey and maybe they're yeah. not investing as much into that? I see that a lot. You know, there are people who just sort of take uh, the mental component of being a runner for granted, you know, because your mind is always going along for the ride. You know, it's, Mm. it's playing an active role, whether you choose to step back from it and consider whether you're, you know, whether there's room for improvement, you know, and how you regulate your thoughts and emotions and, and so forth. You know, then there are people who, um, really do struggle on the mental side and are very much aware of it. I uh, see, you know, a lot of people who fit into that category. And then there are also, I think there are some athletes who just have a rock solid mental game. They were kind of born that way. And they also don't, they also take it for granted. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of that quote from uh, the uh, legendary Australian running coach, Percy Cerruti, uh, who I, I talk about in the book. He said, it's, uh, it's just pain. <laughs> yeah yeah when he said that though it's what he meant is it's just somebody else's pain right just <laughs> yes. slightly different yes yes e- e- easy for you to say yeah exactly <laughs> so you had uh you had your own comeback uh, with the Ironman because you had done only one before and so you decided to do another one to see if you can qualify for Kona in your age group um, and it seemed like if the timeline is right in my head that it came right after your 13 weeks uh, with the Hoka Nazali team so did that sort of influence your decision did you think like well, since I've done you know you did a comeback in the in the marathon and so was that sort of like did that sort of bring you to think that maybe other comebacks would be possible? They were actually a couple of years apart. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I completed my journey as a fake pro runner in October of 2017 and, you know, it went really well and it was just, you know, a peak experience as Maslow would say. Um, and, you know, I came home just thinking, I'm not done yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's next? Got all this super fitness. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I just felt like also I had gained some things through that experience that age couldn't take away. So I wasn't really worried about facing 47 or whatever. 
Um, so, you know, my immediate ambition was to try to run a faster marathon, but I struggled with the same injury, uh, hip injury that I uh, suffered when I was in Flagstaff and described in the book. And I, you know, my, my athletic career, it's, it's, it's a story of unfinished business, you know, running the dream was all about unfinished business. And, you know, I had done that one Ironman and in that Ironman, I missed a, uh, a qualifying slot for the world championship in Kona by 23 seconds. Um, oh. it's not like, yeah, I don't, in a 10, in a 10, in a 10 hour race. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Well, I, I, honestly, it, I mean, whatever. it's fantastic because it means that you were so close, but it's like you were so close. <laughs> right. But but I did, um, you know, in, in the book, I, I didn't want to just um, improving your mental game is not easy. And it's so easy. It, what is easy is to be per Percy Cerruti and say it's only pain, you know, to, to tell to tell people what to do and then not do it yourself. So I, I really wanted to include a component in the book where I, I walked the talk, you know, that I showed these principles in action and in sort of, uh, you know, a high stakes way, you know, again, similar to the fake pro runner thing where, you know, there was no guarantee that it was not going to fall apart. Um, and uh, so, you know, it remained to be seen how, you know, what, what, what I would get out of practicing what I preached. Um, so I wanted to do it anyway, but then, you know, the book gave me, um, you know, the final excuse I needed to, you know, dust off my bike and, and uh, start shaving my legs again. <laughs> so I, I guess the next question is, um, so Alan has a, a running hero. Um, her name is Molly Seidel. It's pretty, pretty new. Uh -huh. A new running hero. Yeah. Right just on. kind of over the last year. Uh, you you might have seen we 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 covered um, we covered Matt Hart's book mm -hmm. uh, about Nike, you know, win at all costs, and uh, that led me to rethink where I'm spending my money on shoes. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I, I, I was orientating myself towards the the new Saucony shoes because one they're good. Um, Saucony are a, a signatory to the um, Clean Sport Collective, um, so I thought, oh, that's a good little uh, feel feel good thing and. Uh, and then I saw Molly popping up um, mm -hmm. uh, from nowhere in the trials, um, wearing these shoes, and uh, listened to her around around uh, uh, podcasts, etc. And really enjoyed her attitude. And so, so I've adopted a new uh, a new superhero in the running. So, if you're listening, Molly, um, I'm now your number one fan. Uh, <laughs> um, but but I noticed that that. You know, that's some of my reasoning around that. And then later I find out that in the, in the comeback aspects of it, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about, more about her, her difficulties. But, but your, uh, your hero seemed to be in the book, seemed to be um, John Benoit or John mm -hmm. Benoit Samuelson. What was it about John Benoit, other than the obvious, she's a fast runner? Right. Well, it was just... Um... You know, she she caught me at an impressionable impressionable age. Um, it was uh, 1983 when I was 11 years old. My my father ran the Boston Marathon that year, and the whole family trooped down from New Hampshire, where where I grew up, uh, to watch him run. And I don't remember exactly. I think I knew who Bill Rogers was before that day. I'm not sure if I knew who Joan Benoit, as she was at the time, was. But I sure knew after the race, you know, because we got to see, you know, we, we were hopscotching 
uh, from Hopkinton to Boston and got to see uh, the, the, the elites. And, uh, you know, she ran a, a world best for the marathon distance for women that day, you know, and I, I witnessed it in person. So yeah, she was an, an athletic hero of mine instantly. <laughs> you know, I was proud of my dad, but, <laughs> <laughs> but Joan was, <laughs> Joan was something else. And she, I mean, she's just an awesome personality. I mean, it's, you, you can admire greatness no matter what kind of personality comes with it, but I, I loved her personality. And she was also, you know, kind of a local girl. She, she was from Maine, our next door neighbor. And so I just, you know, I became a fan, started following her career, which had ups and downs. You know, she, she won uh, you know, the first Olympic marathon for women the very next year, but she had a major setback uh, before then, which is famous. Probably most people listening know about her knee injury, which um, it was touch and go right up to the 11th hour. And, and she, for the trials, I should say, and, and she ran the trials with severely compromised fitness because of all the training she had missed. She had, you know, had a arthroscopic surgery and, uh, and it was her mental game that really carried her through that even gave her the chance to, to compete for the gold medal, uh, in Los Angeles. So she's, you know, she is what I would call an ultra realist. And, and I, I try to, you know, I don't want that to be an empty term. I really, when I tell these stories, I try to, the way that, uh, you know, fans of, of sports approach comebacks is we, we just stand in awe. And, and we think, wow, a superhero did something I couldn't ever dream of doing. And I want to show, no, there's a process here. <laughs> you know, all these folks are doing the same thing underneath, you know, superficial differences in their stories. And, and so I sort of pick apart, um, you know, Joan Benoit's comeback uh, to show how she did what she did and, and how, you know, maybe we'll, we will never be Joan Benoit ourselves, but we can be more like her. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's it's funny you say that because it, it's a little bit like uh, like the the Olympic trials for women. I mean, you know, because I I don't know. I like to watch them every year, even though it's you know it's the U.S. But um, but you know, I know some of the some of the big names from the previous years, and I didn't know Alephine. I didn't know about um, Molly Seidel. And, and so for me, it came up like, oh my gosh, it's this new person from nowhere, but no, she's been a runner for so long. Like after, you know, in your book, you tell her story and, and all that she's been through. And it was like, that moment was years in the making, but we don't really realize it. It's sort of like, we just see it happen and we're like, oh, she had a really good day, but (laughs) it was actually years and years of uh, different issues that, that she had along the way. Yeah, and and some days in there when it wasn't looking good, you know, for for her future prospects. And I find that um, just learning about those stories as an athlete myself, um, it you know, it's comforting in a way to know that you know, you know, the the, the greatest um, athletes on the planet um, struggle in, in precisely the same way we do. Um, and, and they're human, you know, they're more talented than, than we are, but what, you know, when they're able to overcome, uh, those kinds of challenges, uh, there's, there's a blueprint there. Um, you know, and, you know, sooner or later, you know, if, if things are going for you well today as a runner, well, just wait a day. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> setbacks, you know, setbacks will happen. Um, so it's nice to have, you know, some tools in place. Right? And, and honestly, uh, I try to make the point, especially in the last chapter of the book that, even when things are going almost perfectly, you can still, you know, get 
inch a little bit closer to perfect by having a strong mental game. Yeah, I mean, for people who don't know, uh, Molly Seidel had a, a big struggle with eating problems, serious difficulties in being treated for conditions. Also had injuries and was very fragile because of the consequence of that. Um, so she was in a bad mental space and she was in a bad physical space. Made some phenomenal decisions through that process to get where she is now. You know, an overnight sensation arriving to qualify in her first marathon. Nobody sees the rest of the iceberg, which was the fight and the decision-making process that she went through. One of the things that uh, I'm not sure whether it was in your book or I heard it elsewhere was she turned down a professional contract with Saucony initially because she was being an ultra-realist. She, she, she realized that uh, that wasn't what she had to do at that point in time, which was to, to just to run according to a contractual obligation that wasn't for her in order to be the best that she could possibly be. She needed to have more time. And then she came around later and maybe has a, a, a lesser contract because um, it was later in her cycle, but um, was able to get to that point because of those hard decisions. Yes, she actually turned down a, a number of, I mean, she, she, you know, she was, uh, you know, a hot prospect coming out of Notre Dame um, and had many offers uh, that, that she turned down. And, you know, hers is a really good example of how, honestly, judgment and even character factor into mental fitness, which I love, you know, um, I, I think it's a good thing that, that having good judgment or exercising good judgment and holding yourself to high standards of character can help you as an athlete, at least in the long term. So you have um, sort of like a, a, like a, well, I'm going to say it's like a three-step process to um, thinking like an ultra-realist. And the first step is um, accepting reality. How, how do you describe the way that ultra-realists accept reality versus how most of the rest of us do? <laughs> well, there's, uh, you know, each chapter in the book begins with a, a little epigraph, and um, there's one from uh, T.S. Eliot that I, I only discovered after I finished the book, which <laughs> I wish I had discovered earlier, the, the poet T.S. Eliot, who said, uh, human, humankind cannot tolerate very much reality. Um, so, you know, I, I think... Um, you know, this, this ultra realist concept, this idea that the essence of mental fitness is, you know, the ability and willingness to fully face reality. I, I think that I anticipate that that will probably just come out of nowhere for a lot of runners. It's part of the reason I wrote this book. Like, I'm not going to write a book that just um, reiterates what other people are already saying. You know, I look for the places where I have something to contribute. Uh, so, but even though it's kind of on, I think it's an, a, a novel message, like I'm not, on an island here. Like I'm not the only person who believes these things. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm saying them somewhat differently. So I think my insight has a ton of overlap with things like uh, Buddhist philosophy and stoicism, and more recently, even some, you know, empirical uh, psychology. And so that, that idea that wishing things were other than they were, it is like the number one psychological failing of humankind in terms of like, you know, why do we fail to make the best of, of bad situations? Um, you know, our first misstep is, is failing to um, accept reality. It's hard. 
<laughs> that's why <laughs> you know our our instincts uh kind of compel us to turn away from difficult realities um it's easier to bail mentally bail mm -hmm. at that point so yes I, it doesn't fit my men current mental picture right therefore forget it um right. and i'll have the perfect excuse for uh for not achieving or or not maximizing because I'm never going to hit the original target or, or whatever. Yeah. I think the example that you give in the book with Petra Medic, I don't know how to pronounce these Slavic names, the, the skier. Yes. We'll just call her Petra. Let's call her Petra. That had me, uh, when, when I was halfway through reading the book, I was going out doing a training run with Liz and I said, Liz, have you read the chapter about the, the Slovenian, the Slovenian skier? Have you read the example yet? Read it, read it. It's, it's <laughs> It's totally impossible. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> so in terms of choosing a, an example from somewhere, maybe we haven't seen it, we haven't heard it, and just creating the exact impression of the ultimate and accepting reality and, and squeezing as much out of the lemon once you've made the, got the problem, squeezing as much out of it as possible. That was the most incredible example. Maybe you could tell. Sure, yeah. So yeah, um, uh, Petra, as we're calling her, is a, uh, a uh, Slovenian uh, cross-country skier who um, had, you know, a long career um, with lots of promise and lots of great performances everywhere except the Olympics. Um, and, but it took her a while. I think for her, the, you know, the theme I kind of emphasize is that she came from, uh, you know, a small country that had no history of success, um, not a heck of a lot of support, uh, kind of like an inferiority complex that she, in a way, internalized just you know, by virtue of her her, her nationality, that that may have held her back uh, on the on the highest stage. And then, so the was it the 2010 Olympics? I know I wrote the book at 20, <laughs> in uh, British Columbia, Vancouver, it was sort of like her her final chance. Like she had been absolutely kicking butt on the uh, the World Cup scene leading up to it. Um, she was on fire, as fit as she'd ever been. She you know she. She wasn't gonna another gonna get another chance like that in four years, and this was her third Olympics. And then she <laughs> fell into a gully warming up for her first race, uh, and suffered some injuries that they were they could only be diagnosed later, but very very painful and debilitating injuries uh, to her, you know, rib area, that probably would have caused almost every any other athlete to raise a white flag and say, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> this is disappointing, but she went ahead and, and competed. Um, and uh, although she was consider considered a strong contender for, for gold. Um, she fell she hard did. enough to break her skis and poles. Yes. It yes. wasn't a, wasn't a oh, oops type yeah. of injury. It was pretty substantial if you're going to break your equipment while you're doing it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, I mean, there are a few stories in here that, you know, part part of my agenda is, what's your excuse <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you see because um nobody can do anything that's impossible like right i'm not i'm not saying look this miracle woman from outer space did some something that is impossible like no she did it it was very 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 difficult but it was possible and that's that's why she did it and it just it required that she tolerate slash accept uh, a level of pain uh, that, that most of us uh, would not, but 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 I take pains to show, like yes, she had physical injuries, but it was it was still physically possible for her to to do what she did. It was it was just a matter of want to, uh, you know. She she made the choice, and 
I don't want to take the what's your excuse message too far. I'm granting that like, even if you read and internalize everything I write in the book, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to go out and do the same thing, but it still, I think provides kind of a, a pole star for you to guide your mental fitness journey. Not many runners will have heard that story, I would guess, because they're not necessarily moving in the, the sphere of cross-country skiing. So I would point, I'd point our running fraternity towards that. It's a fantastic piece of reading. Yeah, I, I, def, I intentionally sought out uh, diversity in terms of uh, sport representation um, and you know nationality. Um, and I wanted a nice, even gender balance too. So, <laughs> uh, cause you know, it only helps, it only helps like to just kind of on a almost subliminal level convey the message that it, we're not talking about any type here. It's like, it's just human athletes. So you, um, you actually say that one of the things that can prevent us from accepting, like really accepting reality is, um, like our instincts. Yes. So. I don't know if you want to talk about that a bit because uh, like it, it was really interesting. So there were three of them. There was fear and laziness, cognitive bias, and ego defense. Right. And, um, and, you know, reading through those, like even before I read the rest of the chapter, I could kind of see where you were going with that. And, you know, I could maybe see, you know, some of my own decisions in there or like sometimes the things that we see other runners do where they will almost set themselves up for failure by, you know, doing some of these things. Right. Yeah. The, the one, um, the one that's probably trickiest to, to talk about is, is the ego, ego defense one, because there we're talking about, you know, it is, there's a human instinct uh, that prevents us from accepting realities that force us to see ourselves in a way we don't want to see ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. uh, when we when we encounter um, realities that reveal you know flaws or limitations or whatever, however you want to uh, call it, um, those can be tough to accept. Um, but it's always worth it. You know, <laughs> you know if you're able to recognize it's like you know what if I'm going to make progress you know just it could be something you know as quote unquote shallow as just you know improving your marathon time or whatever but you actually have to do some self work <laughs> you know you have to change as a person to to achieve that uh improvement again that, it's one of the things i like you know about endurance sports is that you know you uh they go deeper than just uh looking at a piece of paper where your coach has written down what to do for your workout and, and following. Yeah. I, mean, that, that, I was, I was point. super disappointed when I found out that that was not going <laughs> to But wait, but wait are, are you still disappointed? <laughs> yeah, no, not really because, you know, it's, it's been a few years now. I've, you know, I've kind of, I've read a lot of books since then, but, uh, but yeah, I just remember it being the simplicity just seemed so perfect until I was overtrained and I only realized that I was overtrained after like five years of sub, you know, underperforming and just like starting to have a hard time to even complete workouts. And uh, yeah, I, then I figured out that I have to go about it a different way. It took me a long time. <laughs> I finally got there. <laughs> Liz and I have a um, half marathon time trial tomorrow morning, which we're supposed to be running. But there's a bit of snow on the ground. Not very much, but probably enough just to impede our... our our, our ideal terrain that we chose, our nice, flat, um, fast cycle path that we, that we chose, maybe it's not going to work. 
And, no, and so now, the dilemma and is... Now, we, now we've got uh, ego defense coming in, and, uh, <laughs> fear and laziness coming in. Uh, okay. Oh, it's not going to be as quick. And then we're going to going to record a time and then we're going to feel bad about it and it's not going to work for us okay so let's let's have matt evaluate which of the three flaws i have so basically <laughs> uh, <laughs> well first of all we we all we all do all three <laughs> oh okay maybe it's a mix of all three then but so see the discussion yesterday on our easy run went kind of like this so we did another time trial four weeks ago. And that was going to be because our coach is trying to keep us motivated. And some people are very motivated by having a goal. And some people don't need the goal to keep training. But for the benefit of like having something to gear a plan towards, he decided we're going to do a virtual half marathon. So uh, like a time trial. And so we did one last month. And now it's like four weeks later, he planned another one for the same reason, because some people like doing those things. And for me, when, you know, yesterday we were running through the snow, I was like, well, I'm not going to get a better time than last time. And I know we're going into the winter where all your performances kind of suffer because we run outside all winter, the weather's terrible, sometimes it's minus 20, sometimes there's, you know, like a foot of snow on the ground. So, so like, you know, it's very much you have to start going by effort and not pace. And for me, I get a lot of my confidence from running pace. And so because I ran that I ran a pace that I was happy with and I was satisfied with kind of finishing the fall season with that result. I'm like, why would I run tomorrow if <laughs> I know that <laughs> the result is not going to be as good? And so now we're having this debate because Alan is like, yes, but you can just go and get the benefit of having run the effort and, you know, like have a, I don't know, 10 minute slower time. Um, but for me, I'm like, well, but then maybe I'm going to go into the long winter season that's going to be full of trudging through the snow with my last memory being this, this time trial that will have been, you know, like not a good time. So which one of these three, three flaws am I a victim of? Is it fear and laziness? Because that could be it. Um, cognitive bias? Mm, not really sure. Ego defense. Yeah, I might be having ego defense problems here. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm going to go with number one, um, fear, fear and laziness. Um, because really, all, all you're doing is just not taking Alan's advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's, usually, I mean, that's usually wise, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it, it's just... Um, I think if if you weren't you, you could give Alan's advice to, you know, a, you know, a runner facing the, the same conundrum. You know, I, I like actually how utterly typical this example is because comebacks <laughs> aren't no comebacks aren't always just you get cancer and you almost die and then you have to come all the way back. It's a lot more of this kind of stuff, right? But but it matters, you know, like how you cope with this sort of thing, which happens almost every day in a runner's life. Uh, it adds up into your style of coping. So they're great opportunities to try and, you know, find a slightly better way of dealing. Um, and I mean, I think from my perspective, what you're doing is you're allowing yourself to be um, dependent on proof that, that you are as fast as you want to be. And, you know, what accepting the reality in that situation would entail is just being able to account for the circumstances, just like not just intellectually, but sort of in your bones, just say, 
and I'm not saying you have to do the half marathon because like the, when you, when you have that sense of obligation, that, that needs to be looked at because oftentimes runners get into this trap where they feel like they, they, they do feel an obligation that isn't actually an obligation. And if they simply step back for, from it, it empowers them to make a choice. It's like, Oh, I could do either a or B and, and, and be totally okay with either, you know, it could be challenge myself or quit. <laughs> you know, sometimes quit is you know, absolutely the right thing to do, but, but you need to be clear in that decision and okay with it. So in your case, I mean, you really could go either way. You could say, all right, here's an opportunity to go ahead and, and run a time that, you know, just as a sheer number would be, you know, disappointing, but I'm going to contextualize that number and be able to have clarity about what it actually means. Because you know, so many runners would just it, so, say, if you did go ahead and do it, you, you do it, you run a time, it's not that good. And then you feel bad about it, even though rationally, that doesn't make any, any sense at all. No, I know it doesn't. Like, I know it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. So you, all you're doing with this exercise is just trying to get to a place where, where your e emotions actually just have sort of a rational foundation. Like that they're actually like how you feel about the run is appropriate to the facts on the ground. That's all you're trying to do. And I guess so that's where um, Alan came in yesterday and he's like, yeah, but the the run that you did four weeks ago, even if you do a terrible run on Saturday, like it doesn't take away the run you did four weeks ago. But in my head, it's almost like like one replaces the other chronologically. So then like for the rest of the winter, I'm worried that I'm going to have this second run in my head. Yeah, as illogical as it is. Okay, good. So we know that... Um, that that would fall under category number one. Um, <laughs> we also know that we're doing our time trial tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I want to I, I want to uh, underscore that, like, very seldom, what, you know, because I have conversations like this with athletes I coach all the time, and I almost never tell them what to do. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't tell them what the right answer is. I get them to arrive at what the right answer is for them. I, I just, I just try to clarify. So basically like an ultra realist could do both. It's just, it's more the reason that they, that they do, that they choose one choice or the other that makes the difference. So I guess if I'm not doing the time trial tomorrow because I'm uh, afraid of the result, then that would be the wrong reason to not do right. it. But if I'm not right. doing it because I, because I prefer to continue training and the hard effort would require a, a rest week, then that would be like, I guess more. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and I could, I could even see a scenario where an athlete, an ultra realist in, in your situation says, you know what? I feel like closing out the season on a high note. And I, I've had that. And I, I know 2021 is going to be a good year for me, but I just want to carry the good feeling that I got from that, that last time trial through the winter, that could totally serve your interests as a runner to have that attitude. But again, it's just, it's based on clarity. You know, it's mm -hmm. not about, you know, so many runners where it's just, it's a lack of confidence is, is what it is. Like they, they become too dependent on things going well. <laughs> and, and, um, you, you want to minimize that. Like you, you, you know, you want to be confident uh, regardless of numbers and 
and whether things are going your way or not. Tomorrow's probably a suboptimal uh, scenario in terms of a little bit of snow on the ground and a bit of cold uh, with respect to you know, performance. It's probably a great opportunity for us to um, test ourselves out a little bit in a, in, a, in a scenario where we're not strong, which is you know mental mental fitness in terms of embracing the reality of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> what we have is what we have. How do Alan we, is how do like we the groundwork for, for to then try and convince me tomorrow morning that we're going to do this time trial. Tell I'm the older person of our training group. So so that would bring us that would bring us into. Um, assuming that we're going to time trial tomorrow and bring us into an opportunity to embrace reality, which is, you know, the next step. I think, I think you describe it as making lemonade. Basically, you know, you embrace the lemons, make some lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really love that cliche, cliche though it is, because it, I mean, that's exactly what the expression is about. Um, so accepting reality means just admitting I've been given lemons, like life has handed me lemons. It's, there's no use pretending it didn't. I'm not going to imagine the lemons are actually a fruit I like better. They're lemons. <laughs> like that, that, that's accepting reality. And then embracing reality, you know, re embracing reality doesn't mean you try to lie to yourself and pretend that you're happy about it. It means that you, it simply means that you commit to making the best of the situation. So you've, you've accepted the situation for what it is. And now you say, all right, it's not the way I wanted it to be, but I'm still going to to make the best of it that that is all that's all that uh, that concept of embracing reality entails i guess uh like in the steps of embracing reality um it it seems like there are a few things that are recurring themes in um in in other places where we've uh, we've kind of read about the psychology of running but um it's good to have have uh, to know the what the why and the how so like the the what is like your goal the why is is your your motivation and commitment and the how is um is the how <laughs> is the how exactly <laughs> kind of self-explanatory i don't know i was looking for a different different way to explain it but you know like how would how do ultra realists kind of use these in their day-to-day -day? because it's sort of you know i think we all have we all sort of know why and we all have a goal and we all know how because, you know, usually we all have a training plan, but it's really sort of the difference is almost in the day to day and how how they sort of attack the, the small, um, the small obstacles that happen all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what I'm talking about there is, well, it, you know, there's that famous uh, Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, so, yeah, when things are going your way, everyone looks like they've got a great mental game but i'm talking about what happens when your goal goes out the window most runners panic or they they fold it's kind of like an all or nothing thing oh it's like well you know there's a headwind and i'm not gonna pr so who cares you know what's the point <laughs> you know that's so that's what i'm talking about the, the situations where things haven't gone your way and then what what's the why uh, the what the why and the how um, yeah, on, on the house side, you know, I, I, I like the analogy from golf of scrambling, uh, you know, scrambling for the golfers listening is, you know, if you've hit an errant tee shot and your ball ends up in a difficult lie, the, the kind of lie that you can't really practice, you know, that you have to scramble. 
uh, you know, to make the best of the hold that has, you, you, you know, you can't take a mulligan and, and hit another tee shot. You know, your ball ended up where it ended up. Now you have to make the best of, of the situation. And, and so scrambling means you have to figure out how to like, like there's, you don't have a blueprint for the situation you find yourself in. Uh, so there's a degree of uncertainty. You can't just say, oh, uh, here's the tool I need for this job. Um, you have to come up with something. Ultra realists tend to be good at that, not because like they've got the answer to every conceivable fiasco at hand, but because they're okay with the uncertainty because they can accept it as just that. Like, it's like, I think there's a tendency when things go wrong for people to say, if I don't know how I'm going to solve this problem now, I'm going to assume I'll never know. <laughs> like, but that's not right. Like, if you don't know how you're going to solve it, that's it. It just means you don't know now. Um, you know, to, to get, get back to a personal example, you know, with, you know, whatever I've got going on with my body right now, I, I can barely run, barely. And I don't know if it's going to get better. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I don't know how much running is too much where I'm setting myself back and prolonging it. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in my situation. And it's not just my running, it's my health, you know, pretty high stakes here. And then yeah, I shouldn't minimize the running because <laughs> running is a huge <laughs> part of who I am. So I, I'm in, I'm in, I have to scramble and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, live my own advice by figuring it out and, and not just like reflexively panicking. Cause I don't know. Um, I'm just, you know, trying to make smart decisions, trying to, um, you know, just take a step, step back from things whenever possible. So I can just, again, in, in a way sort of analyze what's going on almost as if I were a disinterested party, um, just trying to help a friend solve it or what have you. So, you know, those are the, the kinds of situations where, again, like it, 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 when things haven't gone wrong yet, the, the what, the why and the how come pretty easily. But, but what happens when they've, they've gone wrong? That's, that's when you need to uh, exhibit your ultra-realist bona fides. So actually, there's one specific uh, scenario that comes up in the book. And um, uh, I, you know, I've, I've had this happen to me. So you mentioned that athletes tend to forget how hard racing feels and then they get a rude awakening during the race because it feels really hard. And I've, you know, I've had this experience with like shorter track races. Like we used to do these uh, 2K time trials maybe once a month during the, the winter because we would have like one day on an indoor track. And, uh, you know, it was kind of just a test of our fitness but they they were really hard and from one to the next it's like could it I didn't remember it being so hard but it, mm -hmm. it would it would just feel really hard um really quickly and so uh, do you have any suggestions on how how we can avoid this particular problem uh I do <laughs> <laughs> I mean because that was my great weakness um as as a as a runner you know when I you know, my fear of suffering, you know, particularly in races, ruined running for me in, in high school, ruined it. Um, I quit, I quit the sport because of that. <laughs> um, and, and that alone, um, it just hurt too much to be as good as I wanted to be. Um, and so when I got back into running later, um, and then triathlon, I wanted to work on that. I, I just didn't like seeing myself 
as as weak in that way. And so I, I have found, you know, I, I have made a lot of progress in, in that way. Uh, so I, I feel like I know whereof I speak. And to me, just being intentional about it is hugely helpful. Just, you know, when you go into a race, actually seek the suffering. Like, don't just sort of like, oh, go into it. Like, I hope this is one of those races where it just flows out of me. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I because have... we think that that happened, but probably it didn't. It's just, right. you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you, if you race enough, some performances are going to flow out of you more than others. You know, they might be within a pretty tight range where they all kind of suck. But, <laughs> but still, you can kind of latch on to the ones where it you know, comes a little more easily and, and hope the next one does. But that's those self, those sorts of expectations are very self-defeating because th then you maybe the next race will be relatively easy. But if that's the case, the next one after that surely won't. <laughs> so you need to be always prepared for a grind. And, and I have found just, you know, for myself, and also if, if you look at, um, you know, the ultra realists, the, the ones who really can go deep into the pain cave, like Scott, Scott Fobble from NAZ Elite that I got to train with when I was a fake pro, he's one of those guys. And when you talk to them before a race, like they'll talk to you just as much about seeking the suffering of the experience that's coming just as much as their goal. Oh, I want to finish top five or, or whatever. So when you're sort of intentionally looking to see like how how deep can i go like can i out suffer my competition in addition to out fitnessing them and it sounds like max masochism but it's not like it simply is a painful sport mm -hmm. <laughs> you know so so if you if you have that sort of mentality it's like you know the pain is going to be there um and if i sort of in a way want it or or, or if i look at it as a tool where i i just it, you know, rather than looking at it as like this necessary evil, it's just something that's intrinsic to the experience and that um, I can either master or not. Um, I, I have found that hugely helpful. And it seems to be something that, you know, that the toughest ultra realists do as well. I'm going to try and seek the suffering the next time I race, hopefully in 2021. Well, I, I will say for me, you know, again, I may, I've made a lot of progress. It did not happen overnight. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I know that, you know, in the marathon, uh, you know that it's going to hurt at one point. And um, it's almost like you go in with a different mindset than when you're running like a like a 1500 meter or something on the track. It, yes. It's almost like you, you know, because it's so well known for being uh, for being hard. And so you know that around, you know, 30k, you should start to um, to feel like things are very hard, and it's what you can do after that um, that point that will you know define your result. But I guess uh, we don't always go in with the same mindset when we run the shorter races. Yeah, exactly. So I, I you know I find as a coach that most runners they they don't like like VO two max type workouts for the same reason like. They they want they want the suffering to sneak up on them. <laughs> uh, like I don't know if it's a personality type or what, but like um, so you know I think you know there's a lot you can do in training you know to sort of seek the suffering. In in my book I talk about um, in my Ironman journey that I I did to sort of walk the talk. I, I talk about um, doing some things routinely in training precisely because I hated them. 
<laughs> like there were, I mean, yeah, they were beneficial in, in whatever other way, but that wasn't really the point. Like I, I, I could have done mm. something alternative, but I chose to do those specific things because they sucked. And you get a lot out of that, you know, like you, you're just practice, practicing, uh, embracing things that don't, are, are not easy for you to embrace. I guess that's a good uh, a good defense for trail running because um, Alan and uh, and my boyfriend they they really enjoy trail running and so uh, every year they want to incorporate a trail race and me and trails we're just you know yeah. I, <laughs> hills or you know they're 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 hard and it's hard for my mental because you have to walk up the hill and it makes your pace be like fourteen minutes per kilometer which. <laughs> <laughs> just just doesn't give me any confidence um but uh, but I do it because I know that they enjoy it so you have to sometimes do things that other people enjoy not just things that you enjoy <laughs> I think for us it's fun for you it's it's base building I mean you got a PR three months later true doing all your trail work um, true true so it was beneficial but um but yeah, not my favorite thing for sure. So, you know, for us, we're just uh, communing with the flowers and <laughs> running through the grasses. And for you, you're just grafting out, grafting out volume. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> hanging on for dear life. I'm like, oh no, I can't see them anymore. I have to try and figure out where they all went. I guess part of what you're saying there, Matt, really is if you do the thing that the, or the aspect of the work that sucks, probably sucks for you because you're not very good at it if you don't like it one of the reasons you don't like it is among other things could be that you're not very good at it so if you focus on it it has the greatest scope for an improvement and, and this is what fascinates me about the, the, the whole book the Humbug Quotient as a whole in terms of uh, mindset and you know mental training we, we don't do it much and so we're probably not good very good at it so if we could you know, extract some things out of it and, and focus on it where we're not really so interested or we find it difficult. In fact, it might contain some elements of, I mean, I said at the start in my story, you know, it could contain the element that could really take me to, you know, my personal comeback. Could be that little make difference uh, element. And the cool, the cool thing about it is that it's not something you have to make time for. You know what I mean? Like, as I said earlier in our discussion uh your your mind is always there <laughs> you know it's always along for the ride you know when you're training so why not just start using it you know that's that's all you have to do but you don't have to like carve out time for another type of, of workout yeah you don't need any extra time but you do need to switch it on i think you need to be conscious yes. conscious of it you need exactly to so. sort of consciously yes. switch it on the three steps to embracing reality that you talk about in your book are uh, an internal locus of control, a growth mindset, an attitude of gratitude or positivity. As average non-elites, um, you know, what, what, do the, what do the high performers tell us about that and how can we apply some of that? Right. Uh, an internal locus of control just uh, refers to a tendency to see yourself as being responsible um, as an agent, you know, as being responsible for what happens next in your life that, that you feel like you have control over you know your your destiny whereas an external lo locus of control is a tendency to think of yourself as i worked in management and i read a, a book called seven seven habits of highly effective people by steve yeah. Covey, 
Yeah. And he talks about proactivity and he says, uh, as humans, we should be responsible. Uh, and he breaks that into two words, responsible. Right. We're conscious of what the input is and then we're selecting the response. I think what you're saying there kind of jives a little bit with that. Yes. So my management training is going to help me. <laughs> yeah, well, in, 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 in that part of the, that section of the chapter, I, I give an example from uh, a study that was done in the business domain about how, how difference making it is to have that internal locus of control. It, it, it's not like, I'm not saying that some people actually have more control than others do. I'm talking about its mindset. You, you see yourself as, as having more control. You, you, you always want to see reality clearly and, and to you know, intellectually know exactly how much control you have and don't have. But you know, uh, layered on top of that is just a, you know, sort of a bias. You know, people who tend to, to or ultra-realists um, tend to uh, you know, skew toward that, that feeling. The example I give is, um, which is you know, an exaggeration, uh, there's a, a kitchen fire the person with the external locus of control cell yells, fire, somebody do something. And the person with an internal locus of control grabs a fire extinguisher. <laughs> ah, that's a good description. I hope that I'm the second person. <laughs> well, you know, I think you know, we, we're, all, we're all both. You know, I don't want to paint mm-hmm. in two you know, brush strokes that are, that are too broad, but you know, it, it's just, it, it, it's helpful, I think, to gain awareness. You know, if you haven't thought about these concepts before, just to like be like, okay, you know, where do I fall on the spectrum? Uh, and the idea is, no matter where you fall, to to seek improvement. You also talk about um, the psychologist Carol Dweck, and actually, she's got a lot of um, a lot of videos on YouTube about growth mindset because she's. I mean, you you mention her. I think you mentioned her book in in your book. Um, she also wrote a book, but. Um, but yeah, those those are really interesting. If people wanna wanna look at that, a growth mindset is just um, you know it kind of makes you realize that you have maybe more control over situations than than you think you do. Sort of like the like the the, the idea of having talent. Like some people are like, oh, talent is like this fixed thing, but you know, if you have a growth mindset, then you're gonna you're gonna try and find ways to become better at something that you want to be better at. I like to think that we have we have a lot of control over over what we do and um, and how we can perform better. So, like, just because uh, you know, we don't want to keep you for for much longer. But the, there's a whole section about uh, self sabotage, and I feel like I feel like everybody kind of self sabotages themselves like at some point in their life. And um, for athletes, that could be always falling short of your goals because of, uh, you know, because you get really discouraged in the middle of a race. And so uh, you end up thinking that it's like pointless and, and, oh, I don't care anyway about this race or this outcome. And then you end up um, falling short of your goal. How can we sort of try to avoid self-sabotage? Do you have any tips for tips for us? I've got a whole chapter on it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, having read the book, you know this. I, I, I go pretty deep uh, in this book because I, I really do believe that that it, it's a human journey, and you know, to improve your mental game, it's not you can't really do it at a superficial level. And self sabotage 
tends to have deep roots in you know our psychological makeup and and those roots go all the way back to you know our earliest experiences so that's another area where it, it may seem like you know the smallest thing like you like have a, a pattern of not backing off early enough when you have an incipient injury and you know you and turning small problems into big problems you may find if you decide you know what this has happened for the last time like i'm going to i'm going to break this pattern you, you might find that the the work required to do that um, moves you necessarily moves you toward becoming a better version of yourself and you know, uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche has this this concept of becoming who you are that I talk about in this chapter and and the idea is that um, nobody's perfect nobody's ever going to be you, you, you know we're not all moving toward being exactly the same athlete like there, there's no uh, there's no one single way uh, to be an, an ultra realist uh, but the idea is just to sort of work with what you've got, you know, to assess, you know, what are my strengths, what are my, my weaknesses, and, you know, my flaws or my limitations or what, whatever, you know, my growth areas. And, and those usually that those in that latter bucket, those items are the ones you need to work on in order to overcome any kind of pattern of, of self-sabotage. Um, you know, an example I give in the book is of a runner I, I know who wanted to qualify for Boston, kept failing. He clearly had the, the, the ability to do it. And, you know, through a process of introspection, he realized that he, he simply feared failure. So he gave himself excuses to fail so that it would never be his fault. And, you know, that, that's, that's a great example of um, ego defense where he, he was, he, it, where he, it took him a long time to realize that about himself because who wants to realize that about themselves? Mm -hmm. Like, like I intentionally make myself fail. No one wants to admit that, but admitting it precipitated a breakthrough for him. And, and after that, he would qualify for Boston every time he ran a marathon. And it, it's just obviously his talent level didn't change, but his mind changed. And, mm -hmm. and he grew he grew as a person in a way that helped him to overcome self-sabotage and achieve important goals. I guess we'll just um, try and finish it off. I mean, uh, you know, we could probably go on to talk about all the examples you gave in the book. Um, one of them being Lionel Sanders, which one of the things that he discovered was his um, addictive personality. And then he, tr he, he um, transferred that to sport. And so he got off being addicted to drugs, which I found was uh, like quite a story. That's an extreme self-sabotage, I guess. Yeah. I think your average run, your average person probably just does little things. Yes. I mean, yeah, there, there isn't a runner out there who um, can't, you know, kind of put their their failures or setbacks, you know, any sort of problem they encounter, put those things under a microscope and find some responsibility for them that comes right, you know, back to them. It's not mm -hmm. just always bad luck. <laughs> yeah. So what's the uh, the main thing that you hope that readers will take away from your book? You know, I, I hope they they buy in, you know, to this concept. Uh, you know, the, the book officially hasn't even been released yet. And, uh, you know, I'm a little nervous about it because, like, it is sort of a novel message. And it's also, it's not necessarily telling people what they want to hear. I mean, you know, I mean... <laughs> there's kind of an irony there because I'm telling people like you got to face reality. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And well, are they willing to face the reality that they've got to face reality? <laughs> if they aren't, I'm not going to sell many books. <laughs> yeah, and it's true that I think most runners will will buy all the training books first um, before they start to think like, well, maybe I need to change my my mental, like I, because I, I mean, I'm a perfect example. I, you know, I read all the, the Hansen's uh, marathon method and, you know, all kinds of other things um, before I started looking at performance mindset and those kinds of things um, like Carol, Carol Dweck's book. Like that was, that came, that came way later because for me it was like, Oh no, you need to be more fit. And so how do I get more fit? But actually you can gain a huge advantage by having the right mindset. So I think you're doing us a favor. I think it's for some people, if they don't pick up this book right away, it's only because, you know, they're not there in their process yet. But I think eventually everybody, I mean, everybody eventually admits it to themselves that their mindset needs a little bit of work sometimes. And if not, you can read it, for, you can just read it for the, the stories. <laughs> the stories are amazing and super inspiring. I mean, uh, you know, like Lionel Sanders, I had no idea, but he was just, you know, like he, he went to all the way hit rock bottom. I mean, he was at the point where he, um, he was in his garage, I think, wanting to hang himself, commit suicide. And the only reason he didn't was because he thought of his mom blaming herself that about his about his death and so he didn't commit suicide and you go from that and now he's just you know he dominates triathlon why well, I, I don't know if he still does but like he you know he was pretty much a household name i mean certainly your description of the story had me uh, scrambling through youtube to actually see some of the races that you described mm -hmm. wow i don't i don't remember this let me mm -hmm. see if i can find it on <laughs> on video somewhere and, and and check it out. It works as a story. It had, had me fully captured, fully engaged. I think also you having your own little journey in there kind of adds to that because, you know, people can, uh, people can learn from it. And if they're not ready to apply it to themselves, they can see how you applied it to yourself and they can read the inspiring stories along the way. So right on. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> I think as opposed to being a, you know, a super young athlete, I'm a wizened old manager, and so I've uh, I've actually read dozens and dozens more 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 than running books. I've read management books, and I see the crossover between the the, the mentality uh, factors. Management books are just lo looking to optimize that in terms of uh, human output to some extent um, within the workplace, and uh, same techniques trying to orient towards maximizing the human output uh, as a runner um, to, to that extent I thought oh wow I never really thought of it like that and given that you know I was in the arena and hadn't thought of it like that people who are running and training probably haven't thought about it at all like that and given that they haven't the scope for improvement is perhaps larger in this arena so if you want a sales pitch for your, for your book in terms of uh, <laughs> having the courage one. to admit to it, there's a huge, maybe a huge benefit to the game. I'm just, you know, running with more gratitude uh, in this time of COVID, you know, mm -hmm. saying, well, it's just great to be outside instead of it sucks that we can't, you know, go team training and uh, have organized marathons and uh, events. 
let's focus on the positivity of being outside in the fresh air, enjoying the training, doing it for the joy, the joy of doing it. And in fact, that returns. Uh, it returns in, in your training. You find, well, that wasn't so, that wasn't so difficult. And you look at the time, wow, that's quite quick. Suddenly you're starting to reprogram yourself. With it. But it takes work. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the idea is that there's so much, I mean, it, it, obviously if you have a bad situation that you can actually make better, you'd be a fool not to, right? But, but you know, I guess, you know, kind of the core message of this book is that even to the extent that you can't change the situation, you can completely transform your experience of it, you know, just by meddling with the contents of your head. I mean, there's, you really can. You can make the same situation seem much better just by facing reality. That's good. That's a good closing statement. Yeah. I like that. Um, so in terms of the actual physical book, um, uh, we did get a copy and it's got Molly Seidel uh, sort of uh, on the front cover. I think that's when she when she was second at the at the trials marathon. Is that right? It is. Yeah, it was. A, that was a good, uh, good choice. I was there. That's that's right. That's where I picked up that virus there in Atlanta. <laughs> oh dear. Oh no. Oh, that was yeah. early. That was back in February, yep. I think. It's a yeah. fairly iconic but, photograph on the front of the book, though. Yeah, it's a good one. She she's uh she she's stoked about it too. She wanted a, a signed signed copy. Uh, and she saw. I don't. I, well, as far as I know, she hasn't been on the cover of a, a book before, and she's very happy about it. <laughs> won't, be, won't be the last time though. But you you were the first. Mm-hmm. There you go. Not not that authors get to choose their own covers, but I'm happy about it too. So do you do you have a another book in the the thought process or in the preparation process? I, I do indeed. And for for those listening who just were not at all persuaded by the efforts we made to convince them that that the comeback quotient is the book for them, I am <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm collaborating with uh, with Ben Rosario, the coach Ooh. of NAZ Elite. Yes. On a real, a real nuts and bolts uh, training book called uh, "Run Like a Pro Even If You're Slow." Oh, that'll be out next year. <laughs> okay, like, well, like a good one. We better get our orders in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, ben, ben is just such a not not just a great coach, but a great guy. So just you know, I, I like writing books by myself, but it's been a total blast, uh, even with the limitations of the pandemic, to collaborate with him on this project. Oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to read that. Um, and then hopefully have both of you on the podcast. Yes. That would be, that would be fun. Or, or, or just him, if you're sick of me. I won't take it. <laughs> I won't take it on this. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, you're like the superstar, so you have to be there. <laughs> well, thank you for that. We want to see you uh, fully fit and healthy as well next time. Yes. Yep. Hearing about your next athletic pursuit. So Liz, why don't you just give us uh, your summary thoughts on the book? I'll, I'll do mine and you can maybe do our outro. Okay. So, um, I mean, I think I pretty much um, said it. Uh, I mean, it's a great read about the importance of mindset, uh, process orientation and dealing with reality. And there are, you know, some very helpful tips that um, each of us can can use to think more like an ultra realist. And the, um, the actual book, book itself is uh it, it's uh you know it's it's a uh, quite a nice cover like i like the picture of molly seidel <laughs> i like the i like the the print the comeback quotient um you know on the white background i think it's uh 
it really stands out and I think everybody should read it. <laughs> now the UK people are going to feel left out because they've got an alternate cover. Yep. Uh, so, but they don't know Molly, Molly Sardella as much, so maybe they're happy with their cover. Actually, yeah. I've already had a complaint from one uh, UK reader. It's like, why can't we have Molly on our cover? Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> like, that's not nice. my decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from my from my perspective, another another uh, Matt Fitzgerald winner in terms of being an easy book to read. Each section has some learning, so it tries to teach you something, but it also has some great stories and examples. So, you know, you get dosed with a little bit of. Oh yeah, it's good food for thought, but also a wow, look at this person. How did they do that? Wow, what what's going on in their heads to achieve that? Seriously, wow stories which give us give us as I said, give us great conversational topics while we were out doing our long winter training runs in Montreal. It's kinda like an adventure book with some learning in it. And also includes you as a guinea pig, Matt, in terms of you know, here's a chapter and here I am in my Iron Man, and this is what I'm trying to do with it. Um, so you'll see the sort of practical examples. The book gets to live vicariously through you. <laughs> Personally, I think it's a great motivational book for the, for the average runner who wants to do better because I think the scope for improvement in our mental approach is, is, is great and, and doesn't cost you anything in terms of you don't have to go to the gym for an hour to do your mental training. and you know, extra laundry because you've been doing your mental training. No, you can do it simultaneously with other things. And of course, there's an epic photograph of Molly Seidel on the front of the <laughs> You can judge a book by its cover. <laughs> so uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. And a big thank you to the publisher, Velo Price, for providing a review copy of the book and also for putting us in touch with Matt. And thank you to Matt, as always, for spending time with us today. Um, if you'd like to leave us feedback about what we can improve or you have book suggestions for future episodes, then you can uh, leave us a comment on social media. So we are running book reviews on um, Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we're reviews underscore running. Uh, you can also... Uh, send us an email. We're just uh, running book reviews all in one word at gmail.com. And why can people find you, Matt, if they want to uh, avail themselves of your training or get in contact with you otherwise? Yeah, the uh, place to start would be my personal website, which is mattfitzgerald.org. And that'll be also um, uh, where we'll get a copy of the book, is that right? If people want to pre-order, would they pre-order through your website? Exactly, exactly so, yep. We didn't mention, you know, it's a fantastic Christmas present. People should buy it for everyone for Christmas. For sure. Okay, so thanks for listening and uh, tune in next time for another episode of Running Book Reviews. Mm -hmm.